one woman told me about someone trying to set her hijab on fire. You have women who could have lived had they had access to health. Young men are like routinely excluded from civilian death counts. They are the most vulnerable to recruitment, but when they arrive at the border, they are the most threatening category of migrant to arrive. I, as a human being, will not stand for this type of behaviour. Hello and welcome back to a brand new episode of Peace and Gender. I'm your host, Andrea Tisa Evanson, and joining me on the show today is historian of gender, sexuality and empire and associate professor at the Nanyang Technological University of Singapore, Jessica Hinchy. Jessica will be on the show today talking about her book, Governing Gender and Sexuality in Colonial India, The Hijra, from 1850 to 1900. Jessica's book is the first ever in-depth history of the Hijra community, which illuminates the colonial and post-colonial governance of gender and sexuality in the production of colonial knowledge. And this is extremely relevant to the transgender debates going around the globe right now. So, Jessica, I was wondering if you could start off by telling us about the 1871 Criminal Tribes Act that saw the colonial government passing a law that criminalized Hijras. So this law, the part two of the 1871 Criminal Tribes Act, just briefly, part one was for the registration of the criminal tribes who were marginalised social groups who were believed to be hereditary criminals by caste occupation. Part two was for the registration of eunuchs. So actually two populations, I should say, were policed under this law. But part two, the act for the registration of eunuchs, which largely targeted the Hydra community, had a few aspects to it. So it was explicitly aiming for the elimination of the Hydra community. This was phrased as being their, you know, aiming for their gradual extinction or gradual extirpation. So there were a few aspects to this elimination. So first of all, cultural elimination. So the law prohibited Hydras from an anybody who was classified as eunuch, from performing in public or wearing women's clothing in public. So this really erased Hydras as a visible public presence. The second aspect to this was a much more explicitly physical elimination sort of strategy. So on the one hand, registration was intended to prevent castrations. And, you know, the British sort of erroneously thought that castration was essential to hydrahood, that it was sort of essential for initiation into the community. And the historical records show that that was not the case. But registration was intended to prevent castrations and therefore reduce the number of eunuchs and cause eunuchs to gradually die out. In addition to that, you know, some officials did realise that they also needed to prevent initiation. And so there were provisions that targeted hydra succession practices and inheritance practices. So, for instance, a register of property and outlawing wills so that you would, you know, stop property being passed down. But the most significant part of this sort of physical elimination project was the removal of children from Hydra households. So this was the first state-directed child removal policy in British India. Later on, there would be, in the early 20th century, there was an attempt to do this with so-called criminal tribe communities that I just referred to. So 
all male children who were under the age of 16 had to be removed from Hydra households. And, you know, then the colonial state had to figure out where they would put them. Some ended up in orphanages. Some were given to so-called respectable natives and some of them to relatives. And so, you know, domestic arrangements, public presence, and also the succession inheritance sort of practices of the community were all targeted. In addition to that, police registration was intended as a way to surveil the community and also hopefully their movements as well. So that was sort of the main aspects of the act itself. You know, in terms of how it was implemented, it's quite clear it was uneven between different parts of northern India. That was partly because the Hydra community and also other people who were classified as eunuchs became really adept at police evasion and, you know, resistance the law. So by keeping on the move, you know, illegally performing and wearing women's clothing in public, keeping their cultural traditions alive within their households. And it was also because, you know, the colonial police force was quite fragmented. And this is much more broader characteristic of colonial governance, right, that it was highly disaggregated and, and fragmented. So because of this, the Hydra community survives, right, as a cultural and, you know, social role that luckily survives into the present day. So the elimination project fails, but it still has enormous impacts on the community. I have to say, I think it's incredible what you've done, where you've taken all these fragments of stories and you've put them together and you're the first person who's ever actually writing a historical account, aren't you? So I'm the, <laughs> I'm the first person to write a book about the Criminal Tribes mm. Act and how the Hydra community was registered and policed under it. There have been a f- two works that are on other aspects of Hydra histories. Uh, So Lawrence Preston wrote an article a few years ago about in Western India and pre-colonial states. And there's also a chapter in Anjali Arondika's book, For the Record, about Mm. a Section 377 case involving Hydras. But yes, I'm the first person to write a book on the Hydra Mm. community historically. And this is the first in-depth account of Part two of the Criminal Tribes Act of 1871, which is the most concerted, most intensive effort of the colonial state to police the Hydra community. So I was wondering, how big was the archive on the Hydra community while you were researching? Obviously, that would have determined the skeleton of your PhD. So could you tell us about that? So the archive was, I think, small, but really important and much more extensive than I actually initially expected. And particularly when I found, you know, I'd done research in Delhi and then I did research in London and then I went back to Delhi and then I was in Lucknow and I'd found stuff, particularly in London. But when I went to Allahabad, which is a branch of, you know, the Uttar Pradesh State Archives in northern India, then I found police registers and local government correspondence. And that was when I was like, yes, okay. I never expected I would find those police registers. And we only have them for some districts, but that really, I think, made the book possible. So yeah, it's not a huge archive, but it's, you know, it is quite rich. So could you tell us a bit more about the British perspective? Why do they see the Hydras as such a threat? Yeah. So from the British perspective. Hydras were ungovernable in multiple ways, which were really intersecting with each other. So from the British perspective, there was the problem of what they perceived as hydra sexuality, what they termed hydras as, you know, habitual sodomites, which was a misreading of hydra gender and their feminine identity and read them as men who were addicted to sex with men. And so this sort of represented a form of, you know, sexual corruption from the British point of view. The British were also very concerned with hydra gender 
embodiment and the ways that that confused binary gender. They also described hijras as being obscene, and so an obscene presence in public space. And this was in partly in relation to hijra performance, which did often involve sort of erotic joking and and so on, which was you know very offensive to a sort of you know British Victorian morality. But also more broadly than that, really, hijras visible presence in public space was seen as somehow contaminating, undermining the order and even cleanliness of public space. In addition to that, the Hydra were also seen by the British as being wandering people, which was in many ways a sort of misreading of their collection of Badhai, which they were not nomadic people by any means. That sort of mobility for, you know, the collection of Badhai was interpreted as, you know, Hydra's being wandering people. That really provoked British concerns with criminality. The colonizers in India had long associated so-called wandering peoples with criminality and there was a concern about that undermining, you know, the stability of political borders. So there was this concern with wandering criminality and that really intersected with this stereotype that the Hydra were kidnappers of children. And so a lot of the sort of British colonial panic about Hydras was framed as a child-saving project. And associated with that was the British view that Hydras forcibly castrated and prostituted Indian boys. A lot of this was a misreading of Hydra discipleship practices. It's very clear that Hydras were initiated at a range of ages, both as children, as youths, and as adults. Uh, While there's evidence of enslavement within the Hydra community, this was quite common in discipleship-based communities in northern India in this time. And it's also clear that not all Hydras were of enslaved origins. So there's these multiple issues that are coming together for the British, right, with sexuality, with gender, public presence, mobility, and this sort of child-saving rhetoric all coming together here. And what this all shares is that the hijras were viewed as being ungovernable in these multitude of ways. In addition to this, in the late 19th century, middle-class North Indian men were also writing about hijras in the newspapers, in Hindi and Urdu newspapers. They certainly didn't talk about Hydras in the same sort of mode of moral panic. There was not that heightened concern that you see in colonial official um, circles. Certainly, North Indian middle class men who did write about Hydras portrayed them as being immoral people. They also portrayed Hydras as being slavers and castrating young boys. And so this you know, clearly there was an overlap between colonial and middle class Indian stereotypes about the Hydra community. And middle-class North Indian men who wrote about the Hydra were, on the whole, had supported quite drastic measures against the community. So, for instance, the banishment or isolation of all Hydras to an island or to a hill. While this was predominantly a colonial concern, it was still backed by a sort of, you know, North Indian middle-class morality. That still happens today, that the state does that. I talk about in the postscript a number of ways that there do seem to be these, what I call echoes, between the colonial and post-colonial. So certainly there's, you know, NGOs, activist groups, and, and some scholars too have extensively documented the continued police harassment and abuse of the hydro community. And beyond that, the sort of 
criminalization in discourse and social attitude that legitimize those policing practices. So certainly there's, uh, you know, you often do see still in Indian media, both, you know, English language and Hindi language, which is what I have access to. You do still see a lot of stereotyped representations of the Hijra community, which portray them as being criminal in a number of ways, particularly focusing on them as beggars. And so there's that sort of discursive criminalization. There's also, in addition to that, more recently, there's been a few laws passed that I talk about in the book that are criminalizing the Hydra community in a very explicit way. So, for instance, there's a bill before the Indian Parliament at the moment that is called the Transgender Persons Protection of Rights Bill, which will criminalize, um, effectively criminalize begging. So it will mean that you can be prosecuted for encouraging a, quote, transgender person um, to beg. And what this will do is it will mean that the hijra practice of badhai or collecting these congratulatory gifts and, you know, also begging in public spaces, which is an important livelihood strategy, as well as, you know, a cultural practice of of longstanding. This bill has been been before Parliament and has had several incarnations in the last two years, and all of them have had this criminalising aspect to it. And this is an act that ostensibly is for the protection of transgender people's rights. Clearly, these, you know, criminalising sort of discourses are still affecting policy and law, as well as that sort of more everyday level of interaction with the state or interaction with the police. There's that level of connection. um, But I do show in the postscript too that there has been a pretty significant departure in the last few years in that there is now a recognised right to gender self-determination. And that was established by a 2014 ruling of the Indian Supreme Court, which is referred to as the Nelsa decision which not only, I mean, it found that the constitution protected transgender people against discrimination on the basis of their gender, and it also, you know, established this right to self-determination of one's own gender identity. So in the wake of that, there's been a number of, you know, different policies and enacted in different states in India. So presumably that bill, the Transgender Persons Protections of Rights Bill, it is based, or it's rather a response to the 2014 Nelson decision. So that idea of n- not only the Hydra community, but also, you know, transgender people, transgender identified people, people in general being, you know, having this right to determine their own gender identity, this is a very new idea. And it has shaped government policy in a number of ways. There's been efforts to introduce what are called reservations or affirmative action policies for transgender people and also efforts to sort of introduce other welfare policies as well. So in the postscript, I try to think about, okay, how we've got these criminalising discourses that are clearly still circulating. Clearly there is still police harassment and abuse of the hydro community and criminalising legislation on top of that. But we also have this discourse around rights um, and also the idea that transgender is a category of legal personhood that needs to be recognised by the state. So how do we reconcile this? And I sort of come to the conclusion that in many ways both these are 
approaches, the sort of criminalising the rights-based approach, in different ways they are trying to contain a sort of disorder that the Hydra community is seen as being as embodying. And so, in fact, they're not necessarily conflicting forms of governance. The criminalising a group, introducing welfare measures to redress discrimination and recognising their rights are sometimes quite overlapping forms of governance. To my understanding, hijras were not illegal before the colonisation, but you also say in your book, you say that colonisation was not the only reason. It was also based on these middle-class Indians as well. But how did colonisation, for instance, and how hijras were treated impact society today, contemporary society in India, for instance? So one of the key questions that motivated the book was this discussion around colonial legacies or colonial inheritance um, of, you know, morality, uh, gender and sexual norms, and then also laws affecting gender embodiment and sexuality. So this was one of my beginning questions, right? In, and I came to the conclusion that the idea of a legacy or inheritance is inadequate to really explain what was going on, as is the idea that this was about an imported, you know, Victorian morality. To be sure, as I said, this was largely a concern for British um, colonial rulers in northern India specifically. So this is a colonial moral panic that does resonate with Indian middle-class politics, but it wasn't the push to suppress the Hydra community was very much coming from within colonial official circles. Nevertheless, that sort of idea of like an imported Victorian morality, I mean, there is truth in that, certainly. The, this project does, this anti-Hydra campaign does resonate with developments in 19th century Britain and discussions around, for instance, male cross-dressing, and that was, of course, how the British understood the Hydra, right, as, as male cross-dressers. This resonates with a lot of stuff that's going on in Britain. But nevertheless, I argue, first of all, that this like local context in northern India, this is, after all, a provincial campaign, right? It's not across all of British India. It's really concentrated in northern India. And so there's local concerns of both the colonial administration and sort of, I guess, their their understanding of social conditions that propel this. Secondly, I also argue that this did speak to Indian middle-class gender and sexual politics as well, and that certainly there was, you know, a number of Indian officials, educated men who were sort of regarded as being respectable natives who could you know, give information to the British, they certainly backed measures to suppress the Hydra community. So clearly, from that point of view, that sort of colonial importation idea is also inadequate. In terms of like the transition from colonial to post-colonial, my book is focused on the late 19th century. And certainly, there is a large gap in our knowledge on the 17th and 18th century. And so I really hope that further studies will be published on that in order to unpack how the Hydra community was being portrayed, say, in literature, also within sort of political discourse in Indian states in the early modern period. 
But the sense that I get is that there was there was a pretty large shift. I mean, we know that some pre-colonial Indian states had given certain ta- grants of tax-free land and sometimes also sort of cash grants to the Hidra community. And this was quite common. This, they were not the only community that had these land and, and sort of income grants to be sure. But we know that they were, in that sense, patronised, as were many different social groups by some pre-colonial Indian states. So this shift to a criminalisation in the colonial period in that respect does seem to be quite significant, though I think there's, it's not, as I said, just an importation of colonial morality. There's these, you know, more regional contingent local factors as well. In terms of then the transition from the colonial to the post-colonial, there's an enormous amount of resonance of the this colonial project to criminalise the Hydra community in the present day. But I am very wary of sort of equating the present with the colonial past or drawing a very straight line between the two. And I think part of the reason why we see this resonance between the colonial past and the present is not just because of a sort of inheritance of certain attitudes or laws, but rather because this is about how how do you know states in South Asia conceptualize what a governable population is and how is gender and sexuality a part of that? And so I show in the post script to the book that post-colonial South Asian states have often viewed the Hydra community as an ungovernable population and that this is really about how do states manage gender embodiment, gender identities, sexual behaviours, intimate relationships, familial forms or domestic arrangements and how is that interlinked with how they view what a governable population will look like. If you remember reading about a person's experience as a, as a hijra in the 18, 19th century, if you could, if you remember a story. The book opens, in fact, with a story about one particular hijra who died in 1852. And this this hydra named Pura was murdered, and so you know, as a result, there was this murder investigation launched. And the British judges who heard this case determined that her male lover, whose name was Ali Buksh, that he had uh, murdered her. And it was sort of a toss-up: is it her chela, or was it? the man who was thought to be her lover. They determined that it was her lover. And, of course, you know, we don't really know what's happened, what happened at this remove of time. And, you know, it's, an, it's a really fascinating case in a number of ways. It does, although the judgment on that case is highly problematic, there's huge, you know, so much criminalising language in this, this judgment. Um, the female dress of... Hydras who, you know, were involved in the case was ridiculed. They were labelled prostitutes and so on, which really highlights that, you know, even in this case where a hydra was the victim of the crime, 
that nevertheless this community was being criminalised, right? So even this case of the murder of Ahidra could be used in order to demonstrate the criminality of this community. And But it's also a really interesting case because it gives us a few little, you know, a few hints at what this particular Hydra household was like. So, for instance, we learn just some incidental little things. Like, we learn that one of um, Pura's chalers cooked her food. And so then that's an opening to think about, okay, what were the sort of relationships between gurus and chalers within the Hydra community or within households? What did being a disciple entail? Right. So you get these little sort of social history hints along the way. But it's also a really fascinating case because the colonial officials in this part of northern India, they kept referring back to it. So for the next 30, 40 years, there's continual references back to this case. And it's remembered as the moment when the British discover the Hydra community. So in the book, I also I also talk about, you know, this sort of model of discovery and rediscovery that, you know, goes through cycles where there's these sort of like mini episodes of panic, right, about the Hydra community. So I talk about what is the pattern of um, that, you know, those moments of more intensified panic and then the, you know, more general anxiety that the British have about the Hydra community. So, yeah, so for me, that was one of the most sort of evocative stories um, of, of the case, but it also really highlights that when we get stories of 19th century Hydra lives, they're so filtered through this criminalizing language, right? And so who is the, this woman who was murdered? I mean, we really get so so little about her life, right? I mean, this Hydra, sorry, I should say, who was murdered, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, no, I can imagine. And there's probably a lot of stories like that, isn't there? Yeah, so... Yes and no. Um, I mean, the court cases give us the most sort of narrative stories, I guess. Um, I've talked about in the book and also another journal article about the police registers of eunuchs that were um, compiled under the Criminal Tribes Act. And those registers are fascinating sources, but they're also incredibly boring and they're really, really brief, right? So, you know, you can imagine it's sort of a table of names, ages, um, you know, it notes things like ostensible livelihood. So what is their presumed occupation? Um, when were they castrated? Um is another column. So there's this, you know, it's highly bureaucratic, very, very brief, but occasionally you do get a police register where, you know, either the lo- the Indian police officer or the British magistrate or district superintendent of police sort of threw out the formula of how you're supposed to actually do this form. And then you get a paragraph about somebody's history, somebody's life. Um, or you get, you know, these sort of a sentence remark on each person, and then you get a little bit more about um, the people who are classified as so-called eunuchs. Um, and I talk a lot about this in the book. And you know, what can we extrapolate from these police registers about nineteenth-century Hydra's lives? What did they tell us about the ways that queer and transgender people, for one of you know less anachronistic terms, were how how were their lives recorded in colonial archives? So 
you don't, certainly don't get a lot of stories, actually. You get um, a lot of bureaucratic sort of classification of data about people, um, and which is both frustrating, um, but also when you do get these documents that just don't follow, you know, the standard of evidence or the prescribed formula, then you get these sort of fragments of people's lives. There are huge debates and discourse going on right now surrounding the rights to transgender and the intersex community. So what is it like for the Hijra community today? Yeah, so the Hijra community is definitely a visible public presence in much of South Asia today, also visible in popular culture, in politics, and also in terms of you know LGBT activism. It's still a community that is quite socially marginalised and does still experience police harassment and abuse in India today. However, there's, you know, Hidras are very, or some Hidras are very active activists, also have been involved in politics. In some ways, it's a hyper-visible community as well. And this isn't just within India, but also within like international media you know, the the Hydra community has in some ways become sort of symbolic of, you know, Indian gender diversity in a way that is sometimes somewhat oversimplifying as well. That was brilliant. You're so good. It's not often that I have to ask questions again, for instance, but you've, you're brilliant in how you explain things. I just gave a seminar, so <laughs> that I'm probably in mode. <laughs> <laughs> You're just going. That was Jessica Hinchy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Peace and Gender. Coming up next time on Peace and Gender, I sit down with Dr. Sarah Niener, an expert in gender and international development. That's what's the big issue for the 75% of women in Timor that live in the rural districts, live as subsistence farmers. If you have a bad year, you, you know, there's not, there's not enough food for people to have more than one meal a day. And I, I mean, I don't know about you, but that would... That would break my heart. This podcast was produced for Mojo News and Monash Gender Peace and Security by me, Andrea T. Evanson, and David Bonadio. Edited by David Bonadio.